0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Before You Take the LSAT. I'm your host, Doreen Benjamin, and today we have the pleasure of interviewing Cindy Zuniga-Sanchez. She is the creator of Zero Based Budget and has an incredible path. She graduated law school with over $200,000 in debt, became debt-free in four years. Then she transitioned to entrepreneurship. She's now a published author, and she wrote a book on achieving financial freedom. I actually have the book right here. Um, We're definitely going to be talking about this. First of all, thank you for joining us. I'm really excited to do this interview with you. Thank you you for inviting Uh, me. (laughs) It'd be interesting to mention also that you have over 60,000 followers now on your account with zero-based budget. You've been interviewed by Good Morning America. You've been on Forbes, Business Insider, Bloomberg Mm -hmm. Opinion, like all over. And a lot of this was because you were willing to be open and honest and transparent about your path. Whereas I think a lot of people, and you've talked about this before, a lot of people have a lot of shame around it. And I understand, right? Like I also went to law school and there's, it's just not something that people really wanna talk about. One thing I wanted to start out with is, before we talk about how you accomplished the feat of paying off $215,000 in debt in 48 months, which I did the math because I was curious, that's about $4,500 a month that you were paying just just towards your debt. (laughs) I think since many of the followers on Before You Take the LSAT are pre-law students, I, mm-hmm. I think I would just want to start with, with our conversation on how can you avoid being in that position in the first place, right? Because your entire book, a lot of it is focused on, okay, when you have debt and when you're thinking about budgeting and all of that, what yeah. about before you even get to that point? You know, If you can be thinking about it and proactive before you get into law school, what are some things you wish you knew before you even took the LSAT and you started law school?
1: Yeah, I think that recognizing the dramatic impact that a strong LSAT score can have on scholarship opportunities is really prudent. You know, it's something that, like, you'll hear a lot of people that will say, like, no, no, it's fine, you're you're okay, or we'll brush it off, or we'll say, oh, there aren't many scholarships available. That's correct. There aren't many scholarships available for law school. Like, they're much more limited. But you are going to have a better chance if you have a stronger LSAT score, period, right? So, like, and, and that, that might be a lot of pressure on people, right? Like, that's kind of, this is like a hard truth, right, that we have to kind of, you know, really confront is the fact that the stronger of an LSAT score, of course, combined with a strong GPA, the more likely a school is going to want you. Right. Like they're going to say, oh, wow, this is this candidate is really attractive. Uh, maybe we can offer them X, Y, Z dollars. So I would if if I knew just the sheer weight that the LSAT had on not just law school admissions, but scholarship opportunities, I think I would have gone even way above and beyond when it came to actually studying for the test, you know, perhaps doing more uh, tutoring and like private tutoring if possible, uh, which that does come with a cost. I'm not trying to ignore the cost at all because that is expensive. Um, But I really think I would have tried to look at more resources rather than just going through like the Kaplan class that I took as a college student. You know, I'm very transparent when it comes to these things. You know, to make a long story short, I just wish that I would have really, that somebody would have told me just very honestly, very bluntly, that the stronger of of an LSAT score that I can have, the more likely that I'll have um, access to scholarship dollars for the schools that I wanted to enroll in. Yeah. And that's not to hide the fact that I actually did wind up getting a half scholarship, but We can talk about that too.
0: (laughs) I mean, I think that's a big part of your path, right, too, is the fact that you graduated. I think we talked about this right before we started recording, but you graduated $215,000 in debt. A minor portion of that was credit card debt, but I think you did 90% of it. 90% 90% yeah. of it was law school debt. Um, yes. But that was even with a scholarship, which I think a lot of yes. people don't realize that you can graduate with that much debt after. And I don't want this to scare people. I mean, another thing yeah. we had talked about earlier when we were planning this podcast was it's it's kind of like scary to have these conversations. I think a lot yeah. of people tend to avoid it because it's stressful. Mm-hmm. And yep. I, I'm happy to also be transparent and say, even for me, like, even as I was reading your book, I felt like a resistance to... This is so stressful. This is so much. This is like learning a new language. And that's what, something that you said in the book too. It literally yeah, is like it learning is. a new language. <laughs> but I also found that, you know, one of the ways that you approached it is you just listened to a lot of, I think the first thing you ever did was you just typed it on Google. How do I get out of yes. debt? Is that right? That, that is literally those... what I did.
1: I just Googled it. Like I went to my laptop and Googled, how, how do, do I... I
0: get out of debt? But that's I think that. <laughs> yeah. I think that speaks to everyone starts somewhere. You left a $300,000 big loss salary to be able to pursue yeah. this full time. So I I want people to know like it can start with something as simple yeah. as a Google search. But then you ended up finding a lot of different resources as you wanted to find more people who right. looked like you, more people of color, immigrants who were talking about... same concepts but from a different perspective
1: yeah yeah i mean you know when i went to the bookshelves all i saw were books from predominantly white male older Mm -hmm. authors and i read those books you know i'm not (laughs) gonna say that those were bad books or that you know you shouldn't read them i read those books but the thing is that i didn't see my story at all reflected in any of the authors really you know and so for me it was a matter of how can i contribute to this you know the 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 wealth of resources that's available to people how can i insert my story as the daughter of immigrants as a first generation latina as someone from the bronx as a woman you know how can i add to the conversation. And that's why I really reflected on the impact that books had on my personal story. And I thought to myself, what impact would it have been if I had read a personal finance book written by a Latina? you know, like, to me, it would have had a dramatic impact. And so I set out to write the book that I wish I would have had access to. Uh, and with that said, you know, my book is accessible to people of all races and genders and backgrounds, because I think we should all learn from different people, right? We should be learning from different writers and authors, not just the, the typical older white male author uh, that will find, you know, a bunch of their books for the past, like, you know some of it which hasn't been updated in the past like decade or so you know uh just having information that's relevant that's fresh uh and that is just relatable too it's always really important to me
0: i don't know that we had talked about this before but i also come from a family of immigrants i think you had talked about how your dad immigrated in the 1970s yeah. from is it honduras from your, yes. your dad and yes. your mom was from back honduras. Door.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah
0: and so a lot of times people see coming from a background of like immigrant. Family, it's often seen as a disadvantage, but one thing that Mm -hmm. I liked about your story is when you talked about big law, you were seeing the positive sides where a lot of times like people, You only hear the negative online, at least. It feels like there's so many negatives that are talked (laughs) about. So I'm curious if you could share some of the positives of coming from your background. You
1: know, my parents, they had very limited financial literacy, right? Like they couldn't really teach us necessarily too much. And by us, I mean, my sisters and me about building credit or investing, things like that. But something they did teach us a lot about was being very careful when it came to debt. And I Unfortunately, did not listen to my dad as much as I should have when it came to credit card debt, which he always said was like, it's very dangerous to get into credit card debt because it's really difficult to get out of. My dad was really right about that. But something that my parents never, you know, uh, uh, steered away from was investing in our education. Like that's always been front and center, extremely important. They invested in our education Uh, From when I was a little girl, you know, I went to Catholic school from kindergarten to 12th grade. And it was because, you know, our local public schools weren't as as good as our local Catholic schools were. And so for my parents, they knew that even if it meant that they had to side hustle, that they had to do whatever it is, they were going to get us to a good school. And so for me, I took that attitude of being very mindful of debt even though i did graduate with a lot of it right i did and i'm not trying to diminish that in any way but for me i saw big law as one an opportunity i mean like i you can't deny that big law uh, working for a big firm would drastically change the financial trajectory of my life right like there was no denying that but then also it's this it's this mindset of also giving things a chance, right? Like being bold. And my parents have always been bold and, and I mean, they immigrated, right? Like you cannot get much bolder than that. And so for me, I thought, you know what? Um, This seems really like a really great opportunity for me to dive into a sector that I know nothing about that is really polarizing, right? Like people that talk about it on the good end like to highlight the money. Right. And the flashiness of it all. And then people that are on the opposite end that say, no, it's the worst thing ever. They like to highlight the fact that, like, you're going to, like, sell your soul to this law firm and you're going to be miserable. But what I did is I took my parents sacrifices, their attitude, their uh, just their drive and said, I'm going to give it a shot and I'm going to go for it. And and I, you know, I was determined to graduate in you know the top uh you know, 10% of my law school class, I was determined to make law review. I was determined to do all these things because I decided that excellence was the name of the game. And that's what I was going to go for. uh, Because I know that people of color, children of immigrants have to work twice as hard as some of our counterparts. Like, I'm aware of that. And so I went ahead and I I took that attitude and I channeled it, you know, uh, uh, with the limited financial literacy that I did have. And I said, let me go for it. Not once will I say that I think I don't like this, but I'm still going to do it because of the money. Because what I found was when I did get into big law, I found that I actually really did enjoy it. And I really... Loved my firm and I loved my colleagues genuinely, you know, um, and so for me, it thankfully for the time that I was there, it served multiple purposes from building me as an attorney to exposing me to the types of cases that people can only dream of, you know, the skill building, the camaraderie, the, the, the amazing, uh, the opportunity to learn from amazing attorneys, right? Like all these things that it exposed me to was, was beyond just the money. Uh, But also, of course, again, as the child of immigrants from a low income community, the money was a game changer. And and it has been because it helped it helped really set that kind of like financial foundation, uh, you know, in terms of helping me pay off my debt, build my credit, build my emergency fund, build my investments uh, and and then ultimately do what I did, which is, you know, exit big law and uh, and start my own business.
0: So before we talk about exiting big law and starting your own business, I kind of want to just recap. So you started out not even thinking that you wanted to go to law school, right? You were pre-med at no, Stony right. Brook. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you pre-med at Stony Brook, full scholarship, room and board, everything covered. Yep. And then you decided to do a fifth year that ended up putting you, I think slightly in, was that slightly yes. in the, at that point? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and like ten thousand dollars about. Mhm. And then you interned you interned for Hillary Clinton, is that right?
1: I did. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I did. (laughs) Only for like a couple months though, because I interned when uh, President Obama appointed her as secretary of state. So I kind of got the boot, but it was okay (laughs) because I got the boot to Senator Schumer's office. And so I interned for him for uh, about a year and a half, two years. Yeah.
0: And so, and then your long-term goal was to become the first uh, Latina U.S. Senator.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah.
0: And so you've I always been to get very into politics. <laughs> you wanted to get into politics, right? So that was yeah. your long term goal. Then you went into law school. You chose your law school. You went to Cardozo. You chose it partially mm-hmm. because you got um, scholarship money. You, yeah. You ended up dominating by being top ten percent of your class. You got onto law review. So before we move on to post big law and during big law. I wanna hear a little bit about how you were able to get yourself to the top 10% of your class.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, my first semester of law school, I really struggled. So I did a three semester program when I started at Cardozo. I was basically like, technically I was considered part-time. I started in May. So Mm -hmm. there's a program called the May program that Cardozo offers where you can start in May, which means that I started law school three days after graduating from college. Uh, Don't recommend. Really, really crazy. Um, But you know, whatever, I did it. And so I started in May. And then um, I did the whole summer. And then in the fall, I started with the rest of my class, my program, we had probably like 90 or 100 students or so. And that summer, I did really poorly, like I got like Bs and B minuses, like I had never seen those types of grades in my life. And it's because it was a huge shock of going from undergrad to law school. And I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Like, my classmates seemed to be so confident. And a lot of them had gone to Ivy League schools. I didn't. I went to a public university in New York. And I was just like, what the heck am I doing here? I don't belong here. I am not smart enough. There's no way I'm going to make law review or graduate or even get to the top 10% of my class or anything like that. The biggest thing that changed my life was my academic advisor so i went to the academic advising office because i was like i need help like i i don't know what the heck i'm doing and i sat down with her and coincidentally um she is honduran she's a latina she went to yale law school so like obviously you know brilliant woman the whole thing and she sat me down and she basically taught me how to take tests wow and that's wow that's what changed everything for me when she taught me like this is how you take a law school test i was like oh this is very different than how i was taking exams. like i thought you need to just like cram all the knowledge that you possibly can try to memorize as many cases and 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 little you know nuggets as you possibly can and then just dump everything on the test that's what i thought exam taking yeah. was and it's not at all. Right. It's really understanding what is the call of the question, first and foremost. Right. What is the law that's applicable? Apply that to the facts. Do the whole Iraq situation. Right. And like be very methodical about it. It's not about writing, you know, a thousand words per se. It's about giving the professor what they really want, which is answering their question and giving backing that up with reasoning with logical reasoning, like really walking them through, how did you get to that answer? Because even if that answer turns out to technically be incorrect, if you give the the thorough and thoughtful reasoning, your professor will say, hmm, you know, and in some cases might even be like, yeah, maybe I can see that. I can see how the student came to that. And so when I learned how to take exams, my life changed completely. I mean, it went from me being a B, B minus student to being, you know, A minus A. And then my last like two years, like practically like a straight A student, you know, it's because I had kind of like cracked the formula on how to take exams. And that's not to say, right. I I, want to, again, have a transparency moment here. This is not to say that you can just like, you know, skate through the semester, And that the semester is no big deal and that you just need to perform well on the exam. Now, for your grade, yes, you need to perform well on the exam because we you know, we're we're graded on a bell curve. Right. And so there's going to be a lot of, you know, B's right here in the middle. And there's going to be very, very few A's and there's going to be few like C minuses or like failing grades. Right. But how do we get past that, like the hump of the bell, bell curve towards an A? And it really comes down to being really diligent about, for me, outlining was major, you know, on Fridays. Fridays were my dedicated days. I usually never had a class on Fridays and Fridays were my dedicated days to outline my class classes from that week. I would go ahead and just think about, all right, what did we cover in class this week? What are the points? Outline it. And anything that I didn't understand during, I would highlight it. Anything that I did not understand was highlighted. And the next week I was in my professor's office hours. You know, so it's a lot, right? Like I could go on and on for this, but I think that the way I handled law school is really how I also handled learning about money, right? It's really Thinking about like, okay, what are the logical steps that we need to take? What is a plan that I need to follow through in order to get the results that I want to achieve? And I think that when you start shifting your mind from I just have to learn all the things in the world to really thinking about what is my objective and what do I need to do to get there? That mindset shift that occurred in, you know, while I was in law school has played into a bunch of things, including even the work that I
0: do now. You know, this is not something I was originally planning to ask you about. It sounds like something that you've conquered is being able to set and achieve your goals. And I think we heard a hint of that when you talked about how you literally just Googled how to become debt-free and and took that first step. Is there any other advice that you would share in terms of like goal setting and achieving that has worked specifically for you, whether it was in law school Mm -hmm. or in budgeting?
1: Yeah. So I think for me, it's always, you need to set up the system to help you achieve your goal, right? So if you uh, have not read the book, Atomic Habits, I highly recommend it. It's a great book. Um, He talks about how goal setting is really important, right? Having goals is great, but you need to have habits in place. You need to build systems in order for you to actually accomplish your goal. So I'll give an example when it comes to personal finance. Let's say you have $2,000 of credit card debt. Don't just say, I want to pay off my debt. Okay. Say, I want to pay off my $2,000 Bank of America credit card in 12 months. And I will do this by automating a payment of whatever it is, $150. My math isn't so hot right now, right? Like towards my credit card every single month. You know what I mean? Like, like, say the goal, be specific about the goal and the specificity lies in the quantifying the goal, naming it, right? And giving yourself a deadline. That's really powerful. But then give me the system. What are you actually going to do in order to achieve that? And in that example, it would be you're automating a monthly payment of at least whatever it is 150 or whatever to your credit card so i think that's been honestly for me the biggest game changer i even did a goal setting workshop uh, with my coaching students at the at the very beginning of the year and i showed them what my financial goals were for the year but i also showed them my system like okay this is what my goal is and this is what i need to put into place Whether it is automating a payment, whether it is, uh, you know, doing a weekly check-in, right? Whatever it is, you need to write it down, though. You can't just say, oh, yeah, it's in here. I've got this. No, write it down somewhere, whether it's on, you know, Google Doc or your planner or a sticky note, whatever it is that's going to make you execute, do that and so for me with law school it was the same thing it was okay i need to usually you know of course the ultimate goal is i want to perform really well on for example my torts exam right but then my how am i going to get there was well every week i am de- i'm going to dedicate every friday uh, at least two hours to outlining my tor- my torts uh course material from that week prior you know, and I'm also going to make sure that I visit my uh, towards professors office hours at least once every other week. These are things that are going to actually allow you to reach the goal rather than you just saying, I want to get an A this year, this semester. Like, that's fantastic. Everyone does. Right. But what are you going to actually do in
0: order to accomplish that? And, and what would happen if you like one week didn't meet your goal? How would you respond to that? Yeah, and that happens all the time because
1: work accumulates, right? Work accumulates. And so I'll use the example for law school, when work did accumulate, I always try to make sure that no matter what, I would leave buffers of like free time in my schedule. And that's really, really important because those buffers help you catch up on work. Because there were tons of times that I didn't, I couldn't get to all the reading. There's so much reading in law school, it's unreal, right? So, like between all the reading and all the outlining, and maybe something comes up, maybe you get sick, right? Like things happen. I think, having building in buffers is super important, but a big thing also is knowing to like really having the self-awareness to tell yourself, this is okay. Just pick yourself back up as much as you possibly can and get back to it. Because what would happen if I didn't is that if I didn't outline my class for a whole month, trying to cram outline everything for the past like month in one day or over a couple of hours, was too overwhelming so identify your triggers identify do you work well under pressure do you get really nervous right like like uh, do you are you an anxious person right i've had anxiety since i was a little girl right and so what do i do to help curb my anxiety building buffers of that kind of like free time that like little bonus time sort of is super super important and i actually build buffers uh in my budgeting too because it it gives you room to be human it gives you room to go over budget it gives you room to make mistakes right yeah and so I think that the this idea of buffers is so important and is something that I did in law school I did it as an associate and I do it now as an entrepreneur as someone that budgets like the whole thing buffers as much as possible are really important and also understanding like How not to overwhelm yourself by just letting things pile on because, you know, then you're going to have even more stress and anxiety and overwhelm uh, when you actually have to confront it.
0: Okay. I think that's really good advice. In addition to buffering, what I was hearing from you is like, you weren't necessarily hard on yourself when you didn't hit your goals. It was just like, you were just focused. Because it happens all the time. (laughs) So I want to ask you um, about big law. And sure. this is again because a lot of a lot of followers of before you take the LSAT are really considering their different career paths. And one thing mm-hmm. you had mentioned is that you did not know about big law before you started law school. Is that right? No, not at you all. You had any no about clue. Okay. <laughs> so, really briefly, what did you learn about big law? Being in big law as a commercial mm-hmm. litigation attorney, what do you wish you would have known before you got into big law?
1: Yeah. So I went to law school because I wanted to run for office. That was like my whole big goal, right? Was, well, I want to be a politician. So a lot of politicians, from what I can tell, have law degrees. So law school seems like a good option for me. Uh, but in the interim, of course, you don't just like graduate from law school and become a politician. That doesn't, that's not what happens. So of course, I thought that I would go into the public sector or, you know, work for government in some capacity. Cause that's all I knew. If you don't expose people, to certain paths how will they ever know that it's an option available to them and so for me i was never exposed to big law i had no idea what the heck big law was all i know is that when i started law school everybody around me was talking about it and i was like oh what's that and i found out that back then so this is 2012 back then law firms were starting first year associates at 160 thousand dollars a year And when I heard that that was the starting salary, I was like, ooh, tell me more, (laughs) right? Like, what is this? And, And I was intrigued. I realized that big law is really referring to the AMLO 100 firms across the country, top revenue producing law firms, the law firms that you think of that have the big fancy cases and the whole thing. But I didn't understand the kind of work that they did. What I did know is that these big law firms have summer associate programs. And that means that they go ahead and they recruit from law school. So you have your interview after your first year, you interview with a, Bunch of different law firms, typically through OCI on-campus interviews. Though so that's what Cardozo did. You can kind of like bid on law firms. Different law schools do it different ways. But for Cardozo, you got to like bid on different law firms, and the law firms would basically pick you. Like, oh yeah, like let's look at her GPA, let's look at her class standing, let's look at all the things to determine if they wanted to invite you for a screening interview. That was the step one. Okay, and so I did that. I bid on a bunch of law firms. I got a bunch of different interviews, and that alone was like super exciting, right? Like, oh my gosh, got an interview. Amazing. I went to the career center to get coached on how the heck do I interview for these like big private law firms that I know absolutely nothing about. And, you know, I was told to definitely research the law firms, research who was interviewing me. The career center was super helpful in helping guide me. I also talked to a lot of law students that had interviewed at these firms and had were summer associates at these law firms and I asked them directly hey will you do a mock interview with me mock interviews are your best friends I did all the mock interviews because I remember my first set of mock interviews were atrocious okay so bad that like I had this man at the career center I don't even remember his name he told me he was like that that wasn't good so we're gonna try that again, <laughs> okay, you know? And it's like, but that candidness is what helped me. And look, being a little uncomfortable, but having the self-awareness of, you know what, everything that I'm doing that makes me uncomfortable is getting me closer to my goals. That, again, is what brings out the excellence in your character. And so for me, ultimately, after I did my screening interviews, then you're invited to your callback interviews. These typically occur at the law firm, and it's like a whole day thing. They're really exhausting. Uh, you interview with, like, four different attorneys. You have to, like, have your best smile on and, like, your best attitude. You have to know a little bit about who's interviewing you, right? Because you want to make sure that you build some natural rapport uh, the best thing that I learned about interviewing was make it less of a Q&A and more of yeah. a conversation. And that was really, really important. And so long story short, went through on-campus interviews. I really fell in love with my law firm, Venable LLP, a national law firm based out of originally Baltimore, but has offices in D.C., California, New York, and recently I think like Chicago and whatnot. And I automatically knew that's my law firm. Like I connected with the attorneys during the interview. I was like, actually, they started interviewing me in Spanish because my resume had fluent in Spanish. And the partner who was a white man with a non-Hispanic last name, that's also another lesson for you. Don't ever assume anything from anyone because this man started the interview by talking to me in spanish and i was like oh okay this is what we're doing and the first set of maybe like two or three questions were in spanish why because on my resume it said that i am fluent in spanish so that's another lesson if you put down a language assume that your interviewer knows that language but immediately i just vibed i vibed well with them uh during the callback interview all my four interviewers were really great and I was like this is the law firm that I'm supposed to be at and I got the offer I did the summer associate program there once the program finished they offered me a full-time role as an associate at their firm on specifically the commercial litigation group that's one of the groups that I was exposed to while I was a summer associate And yeah, and that's where I I was for, for six years. And I truly have the utmost respect for my colleagues and I still keep in touch with them. Look, it's not always going to be rainbows and butterflies, right? Like with where you interview or with wherever it is. But I do think there's something to be said to listening to your gut, right? Mm -hmm. And listening to any intuition you have. Like if you're like this firm, like they have all the shiny things, but I don't feel well here. I don't feel yeah. like I fit in. Listen, mm-hmm. listen to that. Cause otherwise you're probably gonna make your your exit in like a couple months after you start. I'm saying this because of things that happened to my friends, okay?
0: Yeah, I mean, the last interview I did, actually, that was his advice, was like, don't choose yeah. a firm based off of the ranking. Choose it yep. based on who's willing to mentor you, help you get to the right. next phase. Absolutely. And also, I, I really want to highlight this, because I don't know if all the listeners know this, but and I'm curious, I guess, what percent of your class went into Big Law at Cardozo? Oh, I would say
1: probably, maybe I would say about a quarter.
0: Okay. Probably, Yeah, probably
1: depend- about a quarter
0: yeah right because depending on your law school it's easier or harder to get into big law so the fact that you oh got absolutely into, right the fact that you got into yeah. big law is a huge achievement on its own so yeah. kudos to you i just Thank i think <laughs> um, there's a lot about your story that's impressive and i feel like a lot of people th- there's different ways of seeing it and the way that i see it is your mindset is really powerful so yeah. even
1: despite the fact that we lived in a one bedroom apartment despite the fact that i knew i was being raised in a very low income community right very hustle minded grind like the the whole thing right despite my circumstances and my surroundings i knew that I too could be excellent one day. Just like the people that you see on TV and you read about in books, you know, it does get scary being an entrepreneur, right? Like having the ebbs and flows of a revenue, right? Which is definitely what happens when you're an entrepreneur. Um, leaving a very secure, very well paid job is terrifying, but I always think back on. This this idea of you, you can do this. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy, but you can do it. Um, you know, surround yourself with the people that you also want to you know be like. Right. So people that encourage you, that support you, people that you admire and then yes. just go for it because life is so short. Life is too short. Even for the people out there that are debating whether law school's for them, because maybe they're scared, maybe they're like, well, I don't know any lawyers in my family, and neither did I. I didn't know any lawyers either before I went to law school. But for me, it was a matter of, I get one life to live. I get one crack at this. Let me try to make it the best I possibly can. And it's not to say that I haven't had my low moments. I've had plenty of them, plenty of them, plenty of times that I'm like, am I good enough for this? Who am I to be teaching about this? You know, why the heck bother going to law school, incurring all this debt, becoming a lawyer to then just become now an entrepreneur? Like, what are you doing, right? Like, I have had those thoughts all the time, but ultimately again, what keeps me grounded is my family's focus and determination to make the American dream whatever that means to you, but for us, what it meant to us is like really having security and stability, really keeping that at the forefront of our mind. That's definitely what, what I've done, what my husband's done, my sisters have done as well. And that's the way that we get to honor our parents' sacrifice is by not ever believing that failure is an option.
0: Okay. So the question I have to ask is how did you make the calculation about leaving a 300 K salary to then becoming a full-time <laughs> entrepreneur? Right. That's the question everyone's going to mm-hmm. have. So I have to ask that. You've mentioned that your first year in business as zero based budget, you were making, mm-hmm. I think 20 K mm-hmm, and when yeah. you left your 300 K salary, you were making 40 K in revenue or you weren't paying yourself any of that. No. As someone who clearly thinks about numbers, what's the calculation you made both like in terms of the numbers, but also beyond the numbers.
1: Yeah, of course. So. I started my business in 2019 totally as like a side thing. It was like, affordable coaching services to people. I didn't pay myself a dime for the first two years yes. of my business. Right. So 2019, I made about $20,000 in revenue. I reinvested most of that. I remember getting myself like a new laptop, things like that. And of course, you know, paying taxes, which is a big thing. Then my second year, I brought in $40,000 of revenue and I was like, oh, wow, that's really cool. I just like doubled my revenue okay. right in okay. over the course of a year. Like that's pretty significant, especially as a small business uh, when I started. So that was for 2020. And then 2021, when 2021 started, I realized that I was actually turning down a lot of opportunities, paid opportunities, because I yeah. couldn't do I couldn't do it all, right? I can't. Like I can't be an excellent associate and an excellent entrepreneur. I was able to do it before, but at that season in my life, I could not. And the second that I started realizing that I could not pour my all, into either of those I knew that I needed to let one go and so for me I realized that staying at my big law job would have meant in the next few years making counsel and then eventually hopefully partner right like that's the trajectory that you're on when you're at a big law firm and I for the longest that was my checklist right that was my path for the longest I was very unapologetic about it too like when people would ask me like oh like are you interested in pursuing like partnership? Are you on the partnership track? Or, you know, when my friends would ask me whatnot, and it's like, yeah, that's what I want to do. <laughs> but then I realized that with my business, it was this whole other world that the scale, the reach was limitless. And yeah. so I thought to myself, this can be pretty great. Like, this can be a great thing that I do. I don't know what it will look like. And I'm not saying that I'm going to have to abandon my profession completely, which I still don't, right? Like, I still don't have that mindset of I'm done with law completely because I'm not, right? Um, And we've talked about this before. But for me, in that moment, it was like... I can start growing my business a bit. Um, Let me give this a chance because I'm starting to realize that I'm turning away opportunities rather than being able to, like, dive into them. And so I did just that, and I I left my firm, and it was really difficult. Um, I did have an emergency fund, which I teach about a ton in the book. Um, I, I had a sabbatical fund. So I had like a six to eight month. I don't remember how much it was of a runway of, okay, like I, I can dip into this pot of money until like, I really need to start paying myself because remember Doreen at that point, I had not paid myself yet.
0: Yes. Right. Like yeah. I had
1: still had not paid myself. And so I left my firm. I remember getting a few speaking engagements, a really big brand partnership. I took the summer to work on my course which up until this point has crossed the $100,000 mark, right? Wow. Like I worked on this course and I, I poured months into it, right? I poured a lot of time, attention, and heart into it without seeing the immediate return because there was none. Again, this is why the having the runway and having my emergency fund was so critical. And at the end of that year, at the end of 2021, I brought in about $160,000. So I 4 oh. x My revenue from the year before, you know, and so like, again, that's just to show that like, especially with something like our entrepreneurship, the sky's the limit, you know, and last year I had a really lofty goal of bringing in $300,000 in revenue and I did not bring anywhere near that. Okay. My revenue was closer to what I brought in the year before, Uh, but the main reason was because of this it was because i was writing my book and i i could not take on a ton of you know speaker opportunities and partnership opportunities or, or build a new course or do things like that i wasn't able to do that i really had to pour my time and attention into my book which i know for a fact i would not have been able to do if i was still at my law firm so you know things happen for a reason things fall into place for a reason, you just have to sometimes, again, trust your gut, trust your intuition, uh, but trust yourself, you know, first and foremost.
0: Thank you for sharing the numbers. Yeah, of it's course. Like yeah, you, you know, I love numbers, girl. <laughs> and I, I, I think it, it's really helpful for people to hear that, right? Yeah. And I agree, the yeah. sky is the limit, but it's cool to hear you say, look, I set a goal, I didn't reach it, but I was still proud of myself because I knew what I was working towards. Yes. So let's talk about the book. Um, yes. I think the thing people... Would want to know and what I think inspired the book in the first place, yeah. right? Is being able to pay off that two hundred fifteen thousand in debt. Right. We started this com- this whole conversation and the podcast with, okay, how do we get to a place where we're not even in two hundred fifteen thousand in debt? Yeah. But what about yeah. for the people who are in debt and now have to mm-hmm. figure out like, okay, what's my first step? Like, because a lot of people, I-, I think, right, and you would know better. I feel like a lot of people. Try not to think about it. <laughs> so, oh, they me. ignore it. Trust me, I've yeah.
1: coached plenty of people that yeah. have said I haven't logged into my accounts in like years. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I, I get it, and and I th- I think my first thing, first and foremost, especially for those graduating from law school, which is super expensive is to first and foremost, understand your loan forgiveness options, right? That's your step one, is can you get your loans forgiven in any way? So if you are going into the public sector, you have the public service loan forgiveness program, okay? And I definitely, definitely want you to do ample research and really look into that um there are there may be also other programs available to you i believe it's texas that has a so look into state-run programs i believe it's texas that has like a state-specific uh, loan forgiveness type of program for our lawyers, you know, so look into the options for loan forgiveness available to you. Okay. That's step one. So for me, I knew that that was a non-starter, right? I was going as a big, I was going into the private sector. So that option was not going to apply to me, but that's okay. Cause then I took it to the next step, which is how much am I going to have to pay off? What's my monthly payment going to look like? Like get your numbers. Understand your numbers, understand how much are you going to owe in, in, in total, like with the interest um included. And sometimes lenders will make this information easily available to you. Sometimes you have to call. Sometimes you have to play around with calculators, right? But understand how much am I going to owe when all is said and done. And so you want to look at your numbers. How much is my monthly payment going to be? And, and you need to also work that into your budget. You know, so for me, definitely understanding my numbers, but creating a budget Creating a plan was absolutely critical. And anyone that doesn't know where to start, okay, please download my free budget template. It's in the link of my bio um, on Instagram. It's also available on my website. It's a totally free template. Uh, It also comes with a video tutorial that will walk you through Plug in your numbers. Understand your cash flow. Cash flow management is super important. And having a plan is really key no matter what financial goal you want to reach. Whether it's becoming a better investor, paying down debt, building your savings, you need to have a budget in place. If you don't have a plan, you won't know where your money is going, okay? So build your budget. Um, have that plan. Understand your numbers. For me, something that really played a big role was refinancing. Okay. Now I want to caution you. This is not good for everyone. This is not the right move for everyone. If you ever want to refinance, that means that you are basically moving your loans to to a private lender. And so now your agreement is with this private lender and this private lender may not be offering loan forgiveness. Okay. And, and, And in fact, they won't be qualified. Any loans with them won't qualify for any like federal loan forgiveness at all. Right. Let alone like If they just, you know, from the generosity of their hearts decide to do that, like, come on, these are private companies, right? Like they're not just forgiving your debt, right? So you have to understand that if you refinance, which means that you are taking, you are basically moving your loan with this now private lender in exchange for a lower interest rate, please understand the risks that come with that. Now, I accepted those risks because for me, it was, I'm in the private sector. I have no plans of going into the public sector. I just need to make sure I pay down these loans and my interest rate. The average was about 8%, which was on, on hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. That's a lot in interest. So I needed to make sure I lowered the interest by refinancing my student loans. Not only did I lower my interest rate by almost half, which was amazing, but I also lowered my time repayment. You know, so that was definitely important as well. And the last tip I wanna offer is making additional payments. Listen additional payments are key. And I understand that sometimes, you know, we may be operating with limited budgets, which is again, why budgeting is so important, right? Like understanding what flexibility do you have, right? Do you have wiggle room? Do you not? Um, and then making the the decisions of maybe I can put this tax refund towards my debt. Maybe I can put this, um, you know, sometimes if you're paid every other week, there's like two months in the year where you get three paychecks, right? So that like third paycheck. Can you throw that to your debt? Can you throw bonuses to your debt? Especially if you go into big law, your bonuses are gonna be extremely healthy. I'm not saying that you have to put the whole thing to your debt, but be intentional about putting something to it so that you can go ahead and start really bringing that balance down. Uh, so yeah, those are a few things that I would definitely consider for those that are uh, embarking on this you know, debt payoff journey, especially after law school, because it can be super intimidating.
0: Okay. As closing thoughts, a few things I want to say about what you just said. So one, you you mentioned this in your book, budgeting is just a plan for your finances. I think a lot of people get scared when they hear the word budget. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's not popular. It's
1: not a popular word.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But you were saying that as you looked at different resources, the thing that just came... Kept coming up over and over again is budgeting so yes. i think if you can think of it like a plan right like when you have a goal or you have mm-hmm. a vision you're going to have a plan same thing when you're doing something with when it has to do with debt or money or whatever your goals are like you have to create mm-hmm. a plan and budgeting is Absolutely. just the plan that you have in place exactly mm-hmm. and then uh two actionable things that i want to share with the audience and uh, and if there's anything you can add here happy yeah. to have that also included here one is i think something really powerful about your story is that you have a very very clear why and i think we've mm-hmm. talked about that multiple times throughout this conversation without using those words but yes. your family yes. has been a yes. huge reason like your first line item on your budget right is you're yes. you're giving back to your family so i think knowing why you're doing what you're doing for you it's it's beyond yourself right you have a goal yes, that's beyond absolutely. yourself you're thinking absolutely. not only are you thinking back to your parents but you're also thinking forward towards like generational wealth and things like that mm-hmm. and I think when you have a goal that goes beyond yourself there's accountability there there's like yes. it's just it's so much more powerful there's when fire. Yeah,
1: yeah, there's there's fire. fire yeah there's fire yeah there's fuel fire. you know and there's energy <laughs>
0: yeah so I think thinking about maybe sitting down and writing about writing down like what's your why right there's that really famous Simon Sinek TED talk where he started when he talks about start with why and he talks about Mm -hmm. in terms of business but I think even with personal goals like if you start with why then when the hard times come you can think back to those reasons why you're doing doing in the first place so what do you think of that as one of the first like one step that people can take an actionable step after this, this listening to this podcast it is
1: I love it. It's actually the first step that I teach my course students. Oh, it's wow. the very first thing. Yeah, no it's way. the first lesson. It's the first lesson. It's the first thing like, is know your what? why. Like you have to yeah. establish like why are you doing all of this? And I don't mean this in terms of just like budgeting, but like why do you want to reach these goals? Why do these things matter to you? Start from there because that like exactly what you said, when the tough times come, because it's not a matter of, will they come? It's when will they come? Cause they yes. will come. You yes. have the ability to find rest in that in whatever it is that fuels you. You can go ahead and say, all right, this is why. And, and you can have your little moment because we will have our moments but then you can go ahead and, and continue to move forward. Cause that's, that's really, that's really it. So absolutely love that as your first action item.
0: <laughs> so first action item, the second one that I thought of is I, I really like the 30 day spending challenge because that's oh, yeah. something that needs. Yeah. Yeah. I think again, all of this can be so overwhelming, but something yeah. so simple, right? People like challenges, 30 days, like you can commit to that. You can start somewhere. Right. and, yes. I think people tend to get overwhelmed there also in terms of like where do i write it what do i do but you it could be as simple as literally having an excel sheet or even a google doc right you can just write down this is what i spent this is today today's date right i spent this much on uber rides this much on food this much on this Mm -hmm. and like just just so you could see what you're spending your money on and like even if all of that is going to be recorded on your credit card statement there's something about sitting there and writing it down and keeping track forcing yourself to think about it. I think that's really powerful.
1: Yeah. Because it makes you realize like, what are you spending your money on? You know, most of us, we don't know. And we're also not calculators, right? We can't just like automatically say, Oh yeah. Like, last week i you know spent a total of 374 dollars and 89 cents like we don't know that right because like we again we are not calculators we are not having this log in our heads so it is really helpful if you go ahead and you do a challenge you know i would recommend um, you know you can do like a little spreadsheet a google doc whatever is easiest for you have the date you know have what the item was um let's say you did grocery shopping Write down the amount, right? Because that just allows you to like confront, okay, this is how I am spending my money. And the bigger question, am I happy with that? Like, am I okay with how I am spending my money? What are the feelings that I am having around this spending? Do I feel guilt? Do I feel shame? Do I feel joy? Do I feel fulfilled? Like, what is it that I'm feeling, you know? And it's really important. You know, you do it for 30 days. It's not going to take forever to do, right? It takes two minutes of your time at the end of the day. Like, literally, all you do is ask yourself, What did I spend money on today? You probably didn't spend on more than like maybe four or five different transactions, right? I mean, think about it. Like on a a regular day, you're probably not spending on so many things. Now, if you wait until the end of the week or the end of the month, yes, it's going to be super overwhelming, right? But if you do this on a daily basis, just for 30 days, it's going to help you really build that awareness. And just, again, awareness is so critical, right? In this whole journey, uh, whether you're in law school, thinking about law school, post law school, having self-awareness, I think is incredibly important.
0: And I think you still use 30 day challenges. I don't remember what it was for. If It was yoga or something else that yeah, you decided yeah, to... yoga so you, mm-hmm. Yeah. You still use it for, for other parts of your life. I think yeah. it's it's an easy in, right? Like, yes. I think sometimes yes. we think of foot in the door technique when we're thinking of like a salesman, like a, you know, yeah. like something squeezy, yeah. but you can use the foot on, in the door technique for yourself of just like, yes. let me get myself started. Yeah. And just to round it out with a third one, I was just thinking about how you talked about, I think it was $40 per paycheck or maybe even less that you were dedicating towards investing before yeah, you even paid mm-hmm. off. Right. Before yeah. you even paid off all your debt. Um, yeah. And that was like an, you know, just building the habit. It wasn't even about like making money off that investment necessarily, even though you could, it was just building a habit. So do you have any tips for for people who are listening in terms of like, what's like something really, really small that they can do now to build a habit that um, maybe could be something long-term? Absolutely. Every paycheck, automate
1: 10% of your paycheck into a savings account. Easy. It'll take you a couple minutes to just calculate what that number is. And, 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 and just do it. Just build the habit. Right. And maybe maybe you're going to say, Cindy, 10 percent. No way. I absolutely cannot afford that. Can you do 5 percent? Right. Like pick the percentage that is it, that fits with your budget. Something small, even if it's $20. Right. But build a habit. Even if you're doing $20 every other week, every time you get your paycheck to your savings account that's Mm -hmm. powerful. And once you start building that habit, then you can focus more on the increasing the amount, you know, maybe you're going to start saving for something else as well, right? Then you can do all these things, but just having your, which I believe should be everyone's priority, their emergency fund, really starting to feed into that and being, being intentional about it is something that I think, absolutely everyone should do even if you start with like i said 20 bucks every paycheck like start somewhere
0: well cindy this was amazing i feel like there's <laughs> a lot here that people can take away especially hopefully these last few things we talked about people can actually apply yeah. to their I life so immediately yeah. even if they pick one thing out of those two yes, things talked. absolutely I- if you do want more information, I think reading yes. this book, so I will say when I first picked up this book, I'll be very <laughs> honest, it did, it really did feel overwhelming, even looking through it. And then yes. as I read it to prepare for our podcast, I, I really feel like you broke it down so easily and simply Thank like you. there's, it's almost, it almost reminds me of Iraq. you know, like for the bar Thank exam. Yeah, Yes. Curious, like, I love it. Questions. Yes, right? exactly. Yes. Right. It was so clear. And also you have, you talk about Drake in here, right? What's your net net And (laughs) You you got to keep it relevant. You got to keep it relevant. You got to keep it fresh. (laughs) And and also the names that you use, you talked about how you were intentional about using some of your friends' names where there's more representation and people can connect. So I just think that there's so much here. And if anyone (laughs) wants to get started on their journey, including for me, this is something I want to dive deeper into. I really feel like you did a really good job of breaking it down step by step. I can't imagine how much work it took to put this book together. Where can people find your book? Where can they follow you? How can people learn more?
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. First of all, thank you for your words, because as an author, like that's exactly what you only like dream of hearing is that like your book was very clear and easy to follow. And like, you know, I'm like, yes, that is exactly what I was trying to do with my book. You won't find like, you know, pages and pages on end of just text without like being broken up or without examples because like I will lose attention. You know, <laughs> my attention span will not last that long, especially with a book that is conveying a lot of information that you are probably really learning for the first time too. It can get super overwhelming, so that definitely means a lot to me. I really appreciate that. um So <laughs> you can find me. I'm most active on Instagram at zero based budget. Uh, but as far as my book, you can check out my website zero dash based budget.com book and you can find it at you know through barnes and noble amazon a bookshop which supports independent bookstores which is always great and yeah i mean it's it really means a lot you know especially as a first-time author uh, but also as a latina author in personal finance you know having the support of people like yourself of you know your community my community like this is how I am able to do this type of work. And I hope that there are many first gen, you know, Black, Asian, Latino, Native uh, diversity when it comes to personal finance authors. I hope there's a lot more to come because our stories matter and they should be told. And I think that it's really important that everybody recognize that we all have our own stories we deserve to have our stories and experiences reflected on on bookshelves and you know that's one big thing that i really hope my book uh achieves as well as educating you because if nobody ever taught you
0: about money or how it works and you're like oh but that question's too silly to ask this is it <laughs> It's really, really such a great book. And um, there was also the link that you mentioned about the template. So I'll share all of these links uh, either in our story or the podcast notes. Perfect. Thank you, Doreen. Thank you so much.